Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 153-153, and we're going to begin today a two-part series within the Hebrew series called An Anatomy of Hope, An Anatomy of Hope. And my prayer right at the outset is simply this, Father, we pray that by the Holy Spirit, hope will be breathed into all who hear this message and breathed from us in a communication of hope to others who so desperately need it in our times. And we know that this hope is our Lord Jesus Christ. May we preach him today with effect and with power and with self on the back burner. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. An Anatomy of Hope, Part 1. I want to begin with two very brief quotations. The first from Jürgen Moltmann, the Christian faith is essentially hope. The second one is from yours truly, most of life is waiting. Now the waiting is fruitful as we're going to find out. Our anatomy of hope deals with a phrase in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18, which simply speaks of the hope that is set before us. And the phrase looks like this in the Greek, and I'm not going to do too much of this writing today because there is an extreme amount of doctrine that goes with this two-part series on the anatomy of hope. The Greek phrase is T-E-S, the article, T-E-S, tes, then P-R-O-K-E-I-M-E-N-A-T-E-S. Prokemenes, which means before or set before us, and then that word hope, el pidos, which is an extension of elpis, elpis. Tes prokemenes, el pidos, the hope that is set before us. Again, that's from Hebrews 6.18, and then we'll be retracing our steps as we continue our exegesis of Hebrews 6. Hope is set before us in the scriptures. An anatomy of hope is therefore identifiable in the scriptures so that we may confidently cleave to our hope. The first definition given to the word anatomy has to do with it being the science that deals with the bodily structure of living organisms, including human beings and animals. And it's a science that especially reveals that anatomy by dissection and the separation of its physiological parts. Secondly, and this is where it appeals, well, both of these are going to apply, incidentally, to our study. Anatomy, by its second definition, is defined as an in-depth analysis of the constitution or the inner dynamics of something. Anatomy of a Murder, for example. It was a number one best-selling novel by Robert Traver, that was his pen name, in 1958, which was turned into a classic film directed by Otto Preminger in 1959, if you're looking for movies. And I happen to remember, one of my earliest memories was seeing this novel on my grandmother's bookshelf when I was very young. She was an avid reader of mystery novels, as I have been, as time allowed, 
and she was also a loyal watcher of the Perry Mason TV series. So our subject is not an anatomy of a murder, but it's an anatomy of hope. I've spoken and written on the subject of the anatomy of hope before, in fact, many times before in different contexts, but with the insight of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal redemptive and rectifying impact of the cross of Christ, and specifically in our insights with Hebrews 2020, <clears throat> the subject kicks into a higher gear and manifests a broader, deeper, and higher horizon. The hope we speak of <clears throat> is biblical hope. It is a joyful and confident, objective optimism. The source and reason for our hope are found in the scriptures. Scripture itself is a narrative of hope. There's one of our prime theses. Scripture itself is a narrative of hope. Now, when I say scripture or the scriptures, I'm speaking of the law and the prophets, the Psalms and the writings, which comprise that which is popularly called the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And the Greek text of those scriptures is generally known as the Septuagint. The Septuagint is almost uniformly quoted in Old Testament quotes in Hebrews. Along with the Old Testament, the scripture also includes the 27 documents that make up what we call the New Testament. All of the biblical scriptures cohere is as a single master narrative. We've seen that the scriptures in toto, in their totality and in their solidarity, are the testimony of Jesus. We will see in this series, within the, and it's a series within the Hebrews series, that this same master narrative is a chronicle of hope. It is not for nothing that God our Father is called the God of hope in Romans 15:13, who is said to fill us up to the maximum with joy and peace in believing so that we may overflow with hope by the Holy Spirit. The believing in Romans 15:13, a quote that I just made, the believing of which the apostle speaks in Romans 15:13 is so closely connected with hope in this verse because as Hebrews 11:1a says faith is the reality of things hoped for so i'm going to use 12 c's pertaining to our study of hope and that's going to basically give a structure to our study Though the following 12 C's, words that begin with C, though they pertain to the study of hope and give it some structure, this current two-part series, hopefully it's only two parts, within Hebrews, will be carried out more like an artistic than a scientific endeavor. It will be more like an impressionist painting than an anatomical drawing, and we will present a big picture by it and then close in on the focus of Hebrews 6, 11 to 20. Now, we can make a general separation of parts in our anatomy as follows, deploying the device of alliteration, as the Hebrew author sometimes does. That is, many words beginning with the same consonant or as assonance 
shows, another device, many words having the same vowel sounds. But we're using alliteration. We've already seen that the Hebrews writer does the same. Now, again, these are going to be 12 words that begin with C that have to do with hope. Some of them I'm going to deal with very succinctly, very briefly. Others are going to be fanned out fairly significantly, but here we go. Hope first, first. Hope is commanded. In Jürgen Moltmann's Experiences of God, a book I recently reread, he reminds us of the story in the Talmud of a rabbi who was thinking of questions that were likely to be asked of a Jew at the Last Judgment. He recounts the story thus, quote, First of all, the rabbi thought of the obvious things. Were you honest in business? Did you seek wisdom? Did you keep the commandments? And so on. Finally, a question came to his mind which surprised the rabbi himself. It was a question about the Messiah. The universal judge will ask, Did you hope for my Messiah? For the messianic expectation is an essential part of the Jew's experience of faith. This, of course, is also an essential part of our experience of faith, though we are anticipating the second appearance of Messiah, his first being when he appeared at the end of the ages to put away sin by the self-offering of himself as priest and victim. In Hebrews, faith is the substance and the assurance. Objectively, it's the substance. Subjectively, it's the assurance of the expectation of the Messiah's second appearance. Hoping in God's Messiah means the expectation of the recapitulation of all things in God's Messiah, Jesus. That's Ephesians 1.10. It means the expectation of the universal eternizing of the life of all things in him. Psalm 62 is a passage we'll begin with to reveal or to illustrate that hope is commanded, or hope is a command. In Psalm 62, the Septuagint is 61. This opens with the oft-deployed phrase, eistotelos. This phrase has kinship of meaning of the phrase akritelus, which we're going to see. This is all in print, akritelus, in Hebrews 6.11. Akritelos means until the end. We are commanded to hold on to the hope that is set before us until the end. Now, we'll explore just what that means further on down the road when we return to our more minute exegesis of Hebrews 6.11 and on through 15. So here's Psalm 61 in my translation from the original Greek text of the Septuagint, which again was, would appear as Psalm 62 in your English texts. Psalm 61.1, regarding completion, which we could also say orientation to the end. These 56 psalms that begin with this title, Aestotelos, are what we might call eschatological psalms. They either look to the eschatological future or look from the eschatological future back over history. Regarding completion, a psalm pertaining to David for 
Edithun. That's the Hebrew Jedithun, who was the king's seer, according to Second Chronicles 35.15, and who was designated to prophesy and give thanks and praise. He was evidently the leader of a choir, as well as a prophetic seer. The psalm goes on to say in the Greek text, verse 2, Shall not my soul be subject to God? For from him is my salvation. Soteria. Indeed, he is my God and my Savior and protector. I will not be shaken. This, of course, points our attention to Hebrews 12.28, that we have received a kingdom and we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So he says, indeed, he is my God and Savior and protector. I will not be shaken anymore, meaning that at one time he may have been shaken. Then skipping from verse 3 to verse 6, he says, but be subject to God, my soul, because from him is my perseverance. This word perseverance means patient expectation. Most of life is waiting, most of this life, but the waiting is fruitful. Verse 7, because he is my God and my Savior, my protector, I shall not be removed. And then verse 8, upon God rests my salvation and my glorification. God my help. The word here is boethias, which is also picked up in Hebrews 13.6. And then he says this, and my hope is in God. Hope in him, all you congregation of people. Hope in him, all you congregation of people. Hope is a command. And this is when we're going to see this reflected and even echoed in Hebrews 6.11 where the PT says, we only want you to hold the hope, every one of you, each and every one of you, to hold the hope that we have at the beginning and hold it to the end. And we'll express that in our coming, upcoming exegesis. Hope in him, all you congregation of people. And then he closes by saying, pour out your hearts before him. That is, closes verse 9. Pour out your hearts before him. God is our helper. Boethos. B-O, long E-T-H-O-S. Again, a word that is reflected and found in Hebrews 13, 6. Be content with such things as you have, for God is our helper. Who can be against us, etc.? So in this psalm, hope is a command. So our first assertion is hope is commanded. Hope in him, all you congregation. Again, in Hebrews, this is understood, and the PT and his colleagues want, above all, for the readers of this homily to display the same kind of diligence and enthusiasm for maintaining their hope that they have shown and that they are showing in their service to the saints in love. For in this age and on FLOT, capital F-L-O-T, FLOT, forward line of troops, and MLR, main line of resistance. I want you to recall those two things from previous studies in Colossians and Philippians. FLOT is a forward line of troops, and MLR is a main line of resistance. Hope is part of the FLOT, 
which is a trio of theological virtues, faith, hope in the center, and love. These three remain, three remain that is, they remain on flot, the forward line of troops in spiritual combat in the agona of contention in the present evil age. They are also part of a main line of resistance against the devil. Submit yourselves to God, therefore, in James 4, 7, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Shall not my soul be subject to God? It better be if I'm going to be a serious combatant and an effective one in the spiritual warfare of our times. And in case you didn't know, we're engaged in spiritual combat. So then, in this age and on flot and on the MLR, the main line of resistance in the agona of contention, are faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And though the greatest of these is love, and that was our subject in our last message, the plenary manifestation of love, though the greatest of these is love, the holding center of this trio is hope. The holding center of this trio is hope. As we will see, hope is the anchor. Hope is an anchor for the soul. If faith is the, is the standing army and the troops on the ground in combat, and if love is the officer corps, then hope is the sergeants. Most of life is waiting, but waiting is not an empty or useless occupation. It can be very fruitful, as hope is. We wait with tiptoe anticipation for the universal apocalypse of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.7. A universal apocalypse of salvation, not destruction. Salvation for all of creation. We wait with bated breath while the Spirit breathes in us with this hope. While we wait, we pray. We pour out our hearts to God. This hope is not just a weak consolation prize for a delayed event or for an event that may not or will not happen. It is rather the expectation of an event too glorious for description. Moreover, while we wait, the love of God is being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us to permanently indwell us. And the Holy Spirit himself is the breath of hope, Romans 5.5. 5. While we wait, the Spirit causes the hope to increase to overflowing until it becomes a hope that is full of glory, as 1 Peter 1.8 calls it, a joyous glory. And until we love the one we have not seen with the eyes in our head, but whom we do see with the eyes of our heart. More and more, we come to love the one whom we expect. And this is what Paul means when he talks of loving his appearing. For those who love his appearing, including Paul, there is a crown of righteousness laid up, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will crown us with, as 2 Timothy 4.8 says. I'll say that again. More and more, therefore, we grow to love his appearing, to love his coming epiphany, and to anticipate the one whom we love and who loves us with an indescribable and incomprehensible love. While we wait, we encourage others. We grow in grace. We watch out that others are not failing to have this good hope by grace. 
2 Thessalonians 2.16, Hebrews 12.15. Like the rabbi in the Talmud story, we are hoping for God's Messiah. But we're hoping for Jesus, God's Son, who has already come to put away sin once and for all at the juncture and climax of the ages. We are hoping for God's Messiah in whom God intends to reconcile and sum up all things in the heavens and on earth. You just got to love what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 166, which is the Septuagint of 118, 166, especially when we consider that one of God's commandments in the scriptures is to hope. Psalm 119, 166, the psalmist says, I kept waiting for your salvation, Lord, and I loved your commandments. Second, then, after hope is commanded, hope is confident. This will be very brief because this is going to be fanned out later in Hebrews. Hope is confident. It is based on the promises of God, which are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 19 to 20. So hope is one with confidence. It is the same as confidence in one regard in Hebrews 10, 35a. So don't throw away your confidence. If we're to hold the hope until the end, there's no point in this life in which we throw away our confidence, our confident expectation of eternal life in future world. Three, hope is cleansing. It purifies the thinking of the one who has it. It purifies the thought processes of dread and despair of neurotic anxiety and eschatological insecurity. Just as fully developed or perfected love drives out all fear, as we learned in our anatomy of love recently, so fully developed hope or hope completed drives out despair. So just as fully developed love drives out fear, fully developed hope drives out despair. Even in times of perplexity, the one who has fully assured hope is not in despair. 2 Corinthians 4.8 1 John 3.1-3 is very helpful here. And in fact, I would make it a central verse for an anatomy of hope. In any anatomy of hope. It defines hope as the expectation of a moment when we see Jesus as he is in glory and are made to be like him. The ultimate Christology of conformity, conformity Christology. Everyone who has this hope, says John, purifies himself, even as he is pure. In the context, this purification is freedom from the reign of sin. Jesus is pure, and we, motivated by hope, purify ourselves by knowing that we are crucified with him raised with him, and liberated as he is from the reign of sin. Hope, in 1 John, is ensconced within an anatomy of love and appears over and against the lawlessness of sin. Everyone who has this hope purifies themselves from the contamination that is in this world during the course of this evil age. Hope purifies. Hope cleanses. Everyone who has this hope becomes purified from greed and the need for more and more possessions in this world because hope includes the knowledge 
that we have possessions that endure in future world. Possessions and property immune to corrosion, eviction, destruction, confiscation or loss, and beyond the reach of thieves. Even in times of perplexity, and Paul was often perplexed, the one who has fully assured hope is not in despair. Again, that's 2 Corinthians 4.8. Slap that on your fridge. Fourth, hope is calming. Calming. It's an anchor for the soul, as we've already indicated, Hebrews 6.19. Hope does not eliminate all human perplexity, all creaturely frustration, all human difficulties and adversities. But hope, especially perfected hope, is an anchor for the soul in the agitated sea of troubles in this evil age. And in this age, you will have troubles, and so will I. Hope purifies the soul from greed once again because it knows it has an enduring possession in future world. Hope is therefore the cryptocurrency of the soul in a time of growing ecological despair and eschatological fears. Hope does not eliminate all human perplexity, all creaturely perfections, all human difficulties and adversities, but hope, especially perfected hope, and I'm repeating now, is an anchor for the soul, that's Hebrews 6.19, in the agitated sea of troubles in this evil age, and of course in this evil age, you will have thlipsis, troubles. But be of good cheer, for I, said Jesus, have overcome this world. John 16.33. Fifth, hope is the core, C-O-R-E, of flot slash M-L-R forward line of troops, and a main line of resistance in spiritual combat. It's the core, C-O-R-E, of the core, C-O-R-P-S. In the agona of the clash of the ages, hope is an essential element of the armor of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, note this verse. But since we are of the day, we must be sober and put the armor of faith and love on our chests and put a helmet of the hope of salvation. Put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. This is the salvation that Jesus will bring with him when he appears a second time in Hebrews 9.28. All of the fiery scud missiles of the evil one are directed against the hope of salvation. The hope that is certain. The hope that is effectual in Christ, the hope that is universal in its horizon. If you don't believe that, then proclaim Jesus Christ's universally saving significance and see the reactions you get. In the trio of what Thomas Aquinas called the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, hope is linked with love and love with hope. In fact, one significant thing that love does is hope. Love hopes all things. Panta el pizze. Love hopes all things. So hope has to be intricately 
involved with love because love hopes. It hopes all things in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Now, that's what we would call, in my definition of the term, counterintuitive. And that's going to be probably our biggest development of the C words for hope. Counterintuitive. Hope is counterintuitive. And I'll explain what I mean because it won't be exactly the dictionary definition. Love hopes all things. This is not this is counterintuitive to natural human thinking. Hopes all things. Let me expand a little on that. Love hopes all things will be recapitulated in Christ according to the mystery of God's will. The mystery isn't something that we just intuitively think about. We don't wake up one morning and recognize, hey, God's going to recapitulate everything in Christ. It's not intuitive to us. It's counterintuitive. It's something that God has to disclose to us by divine revelation. And so this isn't something that the world holds as a hope. This isn't something that Christianity even really holds as a hope because mystery is too intelligible for normal human thinking. Mystery means too, T-O-O, intelligible for human thinking. And so God has to reveal it. So this is an example of what we call counterintuitive hope. Love hopes all things, and that means love hopes all things will be summed up in Christ salvifically according to the mystery of God's will, Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. That's a counterintuitive hope. Counter to what the natural expectation is, in fact, and I'm, I'm kind of in between hope as the core of flat MLR and, co and hope as being counterintuitive, counter to what the natural expectation is, and the natural expectation is this, it's a natural religious expectation, the natural, even sadly, Christian expectation, I use Christian between two dreaded air quotes, counter to what the natural expectation is, namely that many will be damned and others, evidently a minority of humanity, according to Saint Augustine and others, will be saved in the end. Agape Love, contrary to that notion, hopes, indeed expects, all of humanity to be saved in the end. God actually hopes, but his hope isn't not, is not only not a maybe proposition, it isn't even a confident expectation, it is an unchangeable determination. And that can be explained from looking at Romans 8 and maybe looking back at Romans, reading Romans with the light on when we got to Romans 8, 19 to 23. It can even be said that it is intuitive for people to expect and even to personally hope that at least some people should and must and will perish in an eternal hell. But that's not love's hope. I've heard even recently someone say, that's why we have to believe in hope, because they were pointing to an egregious actor in history or someone who recently acted terribly in history, and they say, see, now that's why there should be a hell. That's intuitive. It's not counterintuitive like the Bible hope. That's not love's hope. That isn't love's certain expectation. Love expects all to be reconciled. In fact, this hope is grounded in an already certain and certified reality. That reality is that the word has already, the world rather, has already been reconciled to God in Christ on the cross. 
and his resurrection has guaranteed the rectification or the setting right of everyone of the human race over the course of all time and throughout all of human history, despite the fact that that might offend your religious and pseudo-pious sensibilities, you Pharisee. Now, hope is always obviously linked to faith. Hope is linked to faith as it is linked to love in that trio of theological virtues. These three abide, says the scripture. They remain. We could say they remain on flot. They remain on MLR, faith, hope, and love, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. All three of these have significance. Love is the greatest of the three, but faith is the first, and hope is the center of the three. Love may be the greatest, but it's not great without faith and without hope. I'll say that again. Love may be the greatest, but it's not great without faith and without hope. In fact, love both hopes and believes all things. Hope and faith are activities of love. Love is the greatest because it is the most complete of the theological virtues, but it's not complete without faith and hope. Hope and faith are parts of the constitution, parts of the anatomy of love. Hope and faith are functions and operations of love. And when love became personified in Jesus, faith and hope were his activities, as well, of course, as incomprehensible love. Again, as hope and love are intimately associated, so are hope and faith. In fact, once again, As Moltmann wrote when we opened, the Christian faith is essentially hope. Our advance in the spiritual life and our resistance of principalities and powers and evil in the darkness of the heights of the heavenlies, our advance in the spiritual life and our resistance of principalities and powers requires hope as the holding center of the three theological virtues. So I've introduced it already. Now we'll expand it a little bit. Sixth C, hope is counterintuitive. Hope is not one of those things that are known by intuition rather than reason. The hope of which we're speaking is counterintuitive because this hope cannot be immediately known by human intuition, but is rather something that is gifted to people by God engendered by the Holy Spirit of God and of Christ. Hope is not without reason, because hope is the incarnate logos. Hope has its incarnate meaning in the logos, which is reason, divine reason personified. Reason and reality itself is known in Jesus. And so I'll say that again. Hope is not without reason, because hope is incarnate in the logos, who is reason and reality itself as known in Jesus. Hope doesn't just occur to us intuitively, just as it doesn't naturally occur to us that we should love our enemies and bless and not curse those who malign and persecute us. That's counterintuitive. The imminence of an event is determined not so much by its temporal soonness or its perceived nearness, but by the magnitude of its significance. I'll say that again. The imminence of an event is determined not so much by its temporal soonness, 
but by the magnitude of its significance. The larger and more momentous the significance, the more imminent the event appears to our perspective and on our horizon, meaning that the more the event looms up on the horizon of the mind. If you're really trained in the scriptures and in the word of the cross, the event of the cross as you look backwards is the most momentous and significant event in history, so it is very close to you. It appears very close to your perspective and in your horizon. You love the word of the cross. It is your salvation. If the word of the cross is considered to be foolish to you, it's not even in the horizon of your history, your notion of history. But in reality, there is no event in history that is more significant than the death by crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is the epiphanic moment, the epiphany moment of history. And all the rest of history is merely the dilution of that moment when God showed the zenith of his unrestricted love for all of humanity and for all of the beleaguered creation. The most significant event in future prophecy is the second appearance of Christ, the universal apocalypse of salvation in Jesus. When he brings salvation to the waiting creation, and the living and the dead of humanity. When we as human beings speak of the dead, and this really goes to hope and to the anatomy of hope, when human beings like us speak of the dead, we're talking from a human perspective. To us, those who have, quote, passed away, or who have died, or who have fallen asleep, to use a biblical euphemism, They're dead. And to us and from our human creaturely perspective, they're simply dead. But to God, they are living. Because as Jesus said, to the living God, all are living. Start seeing the way God sees about death and you'll have hope instead of despair. That's Luke 20, 38. We think too often in a way that may be described as from here to there. We should change our perspective when it comes to death. We should not think of someone passing from here, life, to there, death, but from the perspective of life coming from there, the living God, to here, to take someone out of the realm of dying and death and into life and resurrection. That's hope. That's right thinking. But it's counterintuitive. You can see that on gravestones all across this earth. So this is a part of the anatomy of hope. Hope thinks not so much about us going to the future, but of the future coming to us. When Jesus appears a second time, he will come to us from the future, from future world. And he will bring future world, along with all the angels who are worshiping and adoring him, the cosmos of the new creation of all things for eternal life, he will bring that to us. Biblical hope requires that we think counterintuitively. To think counterintuitively is to believe with a perspective that is contrary to our bias of mere common sense and our natural knowing apart from natural reason or empirical proof. The Sermon on the Mount, 
And I'm going to close with this and go into, I'm going to hold off to the next message because this has been a little chock full of principles. I'm going to hold off until the increment 154, which is coming up on Sunday the 22nd. The Sermon on the Mount is an example of counter-intuition. By natural intuition, we love our friends and hold goodwill for them, and we hate our enemies and wish them ill. But Jesus proposes the counterintuitive commandment to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. So hope as counterintuitive will be, and it's the sixth of 12 C's, will continue because it's got to be fanned out quite a bit. We'll continue in the next increment. Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit has, in fact, breathed hope into us. We look at these things with bated breath, meaning that our human breath becomes breathless. But what takes over is the breath of the Holy Spirit breathing hope, causing hope to overflow. May hope overflow to all those who hear this message today, overflow in such a way that we all become communicators and conveyors of this hope to others who are without hope, without God, and without a messianic expectation in this world. We ask this in the name of our Messiah and our Lord and Savior, who is the Savior of the world, and your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.